0: Bites and quarrels among you, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We are um, continuing, uh, this is a part two, we don't do too many two-part messages um, in these series, but this is a part two. We're continuing a conversation that we started last week from James 4 in the passage that Emmy uh, read a minute ago. We're continuing a conversation, not rehashing a conversation, not rehaving a conversation from last week. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a brief summary at the beginning, but I'm warning you, if you weren't here last week. The context for everything we're about to talk about was talked about last week, particularly the first three or four verses of the passage. So I'd encourage you, um, if you've never followed that little link at the bottom of your page, um, go hit up the podcast and kind of get the background for this. We're going to talk about coming back to God. Let me pray for us, and we will get into this. Jesus... um, There's beautiful words at the end of this uh, in chapter 5, those two verses. It's a picture of your heart that you pursue and bring back people who wander. You turn sinners from their ways, from the error of their ways. There's error in our way, the way we live, the way we walk. We know some of them. We don't know most of them. So even tonight, would you turn us? Would you turn us? Would you pursue us and bring us back? Pray this in your name and in your power, and for your sake, Jesus. Amen. Well, James asked a question. We spent a lot of time on this question last week, but he asked us a question in this very first verse, and it's a, really great, it's, it's a really great question with a ton of different potential answers, so it makes it interesting how he answers it. His question is, what causes drama among us? And the us in the sentence is people who believe in Jesus, who follow Jesus, so Christians. What causes the relational drama between us? James wants to know, and he's talking about real life circumstances to his original audience. This wasn't hypothetical. It's not for us either, right? Like, you don't have to live more than 24 hours for this to become a real life example. But what causes the drama? What causes the issues that you feel the wedges, the bitterness between you and another person, or a ministry, or a church, or an organization? What's What causes it? Again, for some of you, conflict is hot. It's externalized. It's verbal. It's real arguments. It's hurtful words. It's Hopefully not violence, but it's, it's out there. But for some of you, it's internalized, it's never verbalized, it's cold, it's resentment, it's avoidance, it's silence. But James is asking, what causes that toxic conflict, this fighting and quarreling? And his answer is, not any of the usual suspects. None of the usual suspects. We went through the whole litany of them last week, but the usual suspects are... What she said or what he did, so other people's actions, is a, is a go-to understandable answer. Well, I'm upset because of what she did, or I'm really frustrated because of what he said. Um, another usual suspect that James says, nope, keep, keep digging. Um, another usual suspect that we throw out there is uh, circumstances. My advisor messed up my schedule, the traffic was bad, haven't gotten any sleep lately. And James is saying other people's actions towards you, even their wrongs towards you, and any kind of circumstances, they can be bad, but they're just triggers. They're occasions that shake out whatever was inside your heart. So if there was already conflict and war going on inside your heart, those triggers just bring it out into the open. And then it gets directed at God or other people. So what's the root cause of all of that? Um, Ultimately, he says, um, these hungry, selfish desires that are at war inside my heart, these hungry, hungry cravings that I'm prone to wake up every day subconsciously just on the hunt to satisfy and feed. But tonight, I told you we're not here to rehash last week's conversation because we toyed around with that stuff a lot more last week. We're here tonight to ask, well, what are we supposed to do if this is true? We assume it's true that this is an accurate diagnosis of what's going on in our hearts, well, what next? What do we do? What do we do with this when you realize that your heart is home to these hedonistic desires? When you realize, in all honesty, I do use other people and God himself as a bridge to just walk over them to get to what I really love, to my true gods? What do you do next if you realize that about yourself? Well, thankfully, um, the guy who's been our teacher this fall and is tonight, too, is the king of practical. Have you appreciated that? I've loved it. James is so down to earth, easily understandable, practical. Um, So thankfully, that's who our teacher is tonight. And so that gives us a lot of hope. But he's also the little brother of the Messiah. He's the little brother of Jesus, the Redeemer, the Savior of sinners. And he was one of those saved by his brother. Not a Christian by birth or by heritage, but a Christian because Jesus appeared to him and resurrected him and freed him from those desires that kept him captive. So we should expect to see a lot of practicality in what he tells us to do, but also a lot of grace and a lot of mercy and a lot of hope. And that's exactly what we see. But that does not mean that it necessarily gets easier to hear because I think the first thing that James would say the, that first step towards a solution or a cure of the disease that's still present even in the Christian's heart, the first step towards that solution is understanding the true nature of the problem, which is a step. I mean, if, if you've ever been, uh, had a family member or a close friend who's gotten a really hard diagnosis, that is a process. It is a step, it's an action step, it's a to do item to embrace and grapple with the diagnosis, the word that the doctor said. That takes time to embrace that, to let that sink in. And James is saying, do you agree? Or are you still blaming people and circumstances and everything else for why your heart responds the way your heart responds? So the first step towards that cure is understanding the true nature of the problem, which is what James has described. Until you recognize the depth of the disease and that it's in your heart, you'll never embrace the kind of cure that he's about to recommend. Um, what do I mean when I say uh, kind of being sobered by the, by the depth of the diagnosis of the depth of the disease? He says this in verse 4. He, he, uh, and remember, he's talking to people he knows, to Christians. And he says, you adulterous people, you adulterous people, if you've been around the Bible much time, you know that that's not him um, i know, reaching for like a new metaphor. That's how the Bible frequently describes sin as adultery. Because God wants us to think of the devastation of adultery when we think of sin. Sin is, is personal. Sin is intimate. And it's a relational earthquake both between you and other people or other people in you if you're the one sinned against and between us and god so sin is not an arbitrary policy violation of a boss you've never met sin is a betrayal of a best friend it's a betrayal of a best friend it's a breach of an existing relationship now every human being has an existing relationship with god or at least God says every human being has, a, has an existing relationship with him, both by creation, we're his offspring, he made us, he sustains us, he gives life, he takes life away. We're responsible to him morally and ethically and in every other way. He has authority in our lives, but we're also related to him if you are in Jesus. He's adopted you as a son or a daughter, so you're not just his by creation and, and related to him by virtue of him making you, but you're related to him by virtue of him redeeming you. You're doubly his. So there's there's, a, there's an appropriate possessiveness in the Christian's relationship with God. He is mine, and God would say to you, "You are mine." So that that language of adultery is actually pretty shuddering, because there's no halfway with cheating on your spouse. And I hesitate to even talk about this stuff because even thinking about these examples kinda makes me shudder. Before I was married and before I had a lot of married friends, this language didn't really affect me that much. And now um, it throws me and Anna off, not together, but it just, it, it, it unsettles me to my depths for about a month every time I hear of another friend whose marriage broke apart or somebody was unfaithful because of the ripping that adultery does. So I shudder to even share examples like this. I'm, I'll be very brief and, and very generic here, but imagine a husband who comes to his wife and says, hey, babe, can we, can, there's this girl, can we please let her move in to the guest room? Or a wife who comes to her husband and says, can we please let her move into the guest room? It's nothing physical, but I'd really, I've just really kind of, I've fallen in love with him. I really love having her around. I still want you in the picture too. Can you imagine the breach that happens? And it also shows you there's no halfway with adultery. It's all or nothing. It's a full breach of relationship or none. And that's what James is getting at when he says in verse 4, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's no havesies with this. There's no kind of arm's length relationship with God, arm's length relationship with God the ungodly ways of the world. He says it's all or nothing. Don't you know that embracing as a friend that self-serving, self-centered attitude of heart where we use other people and God as a means to get to what we really want. Don't you know that embracing that, naming that a friend, someone you want in your life, someone you want a future with, a posture of heart that you want to cling to, don't you know that friendship with that attitude of heart by necessity is enmity with God? here's an example of this. Um, This makes sense kind of like when you think about kind of the way that countries relate to each other. After 9-11, George W. Bush gives a speech a few days after, and he says to the whole world, either you are with us or you're against us. And he said, if you are with our enemies, which at the time was the Taliban, you are our enemy. Joe Biden has said the same thing. If you are friends, if any countries out there are embracing and friends with Russia in this war, you are our enemy. Because what it means to embrace a country like that that's doing what it's doing means you are diametrically opposed to all that we love, all that we value, all that we're about. Does it make sense? You cannot be friends with that country and us. Pick a side. James is saying you cannot be friends with both the world and with God. We can't embrace a self-giving God and also cling to, as a friend, a self-serving posture of heart, a life-oriented all around me and my desires. I hope that makes sense. It just doesn't work. It's oil and water. So again, what do we do with all of this? What's the response to realizing that this is going on in our hearts? Well, here's where James starts to just throw out Big hints of hope. First big hint of hope is in verse 6. He says, but God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I'm sorry, just before that in verse 5. Or do you think scripture says for no reason that God jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? Um, Okay, honest moment here. Most theologians and commentators don't exactly know what exactly that means. There's three or four different options for interpretation of like, what is James trying to say here? But most people believe at a minimum what he's saying is, is God never gave up on humanity. He jealously yearns for and longs for, that's the word, he he jealously longs for his image bearers his creatures, the, the life, the spirit, the breath that he's put in us. In other words, he's not an objective, neutral observer of this dynamic of us falling in love with other lovers, with other, other gods. He's not just kind of sitting there indifferently observing it. He's all in. He's here for it. He's not a casual observer, but he's invested, and he's not walking away. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for you. Which means because he loves you, he's bothered by this stuff going on in our heart. He's bothered by it. It bothers him. And that's good news. Imagine um, a child, he reaches their teen years or college years and, and falls into just terrible addiction and you knew the mom or the dad of that kid, and they were just completely indifferent to it, what would you immediately question? Do you even love him? Do you even love him? You seem so nonchalant about this, kind of just his, his whole life falling apart. If the mom or the dad loves their kid, they're deeply bothered and unsettled by what's happening And they're jealous for what they knew that son or that daughter was always meant to be. And they're not giving up, and they're not walking away, and they're not an indifferent observer. They're a biased observer, in a sense, or a a biased participant. This is good news. Because it means God is still in the picture, because he's not walking away. Even in the aftermath of our idolatry, even in the aftermath of our distancing and our drifting even in the aftermath of just kind of letting him be the genie who rubber stamps our agenda. And like James says, we pray about these things. We ask with wrong motives so that we can get God to help us be more successful in our idolatry. We actually, we're so deceived, we actually don't realize what we're doing. And we pray that God, it's like begging our husband or begging your wife to help facilitate your abandonment of your husband or your wife. And going to another person. Even in the aftermath of of that, God says, I'm still here. I'm still in it. I'm jealous for you, and that's good news. So James gives another hint of hope down at that last chunk. This is actually the last two verses of the book of James, but they, they fit here beautifully. This is the heart of God in writing a God who doesn't just want you and me to pursue other brothers and sisters in the faith who are wandering from Jesus. But the reason he wants you to do that is because that's his heart, and that's what he does. He pursues the wandering to bring that person back, to turn a sinner from the error of their ways and save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's also a huge shot of hope right in the middle of some messy stuff that James is calling out. So, if God is jealous for us, that means he's engaging us, he's calling us, he's pursuing us, and he's coming near to us even as we've drifted far from him. So after hinting at all this hope that God is still in the picture, James gets really practical. This is that little paragraph from verse 7 to 10. In the space of one tiny little paragraph, five sentences, James throws out eight commands. James invites you to eight action steps, as it were, eight things you can do and I can do. He says, God will show favor to you in your humility. He's jealous for you and inclined towards you. God gives more grace in the face of your greater need. God will draw near to you. God will lift you up in your humility. And God will help you escape from the devil himself. Those are promises that James gives right beside all the commands that he gives. Here's the commands. He says, verse 7, the first, Submit yourselves then to God. Submit. Submit yourselves then to God. He's not saying, know your place and get in it. You're Icarus. You've flown too close to the sun. Get back down on the ground. Be humble. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, submit even these hungry, hedonistic, crazy desires in your heart that you don't know how to control. Bring even those and submit them before the feet of a good father who can help who can reorder and remake and reshape your desires. This is what that prayer might sound like. To submit yourself to God, even in the messy ugliness of what you might find going on in your heart, of why you respond the way you respond to other people or circumstances. It could sound like this, Lord, I really resent this person, and I'm realizing the reason I resent them is because I really ju- I want them to see me. I want their attention. That's why. I'm so angry because I feel invisible whenever I'm around them. They just look right through me. And I used to blame it on them. And it does hurt. I don't think they've loved me very well, but the reason it bothers me so deeply, Father, is because I'm so attached to being seen and noticed and approved of by that person. Father, I was not made to build my 21-year-old life on such a sandy, shaky foundation as her approval or his approval. I don't want that life, but I still kind of do want that life. Have mercy. Help me. My desires are all over the map. That's what bringing those unruly, crazy desires and submitting them to a good, gracious father could sound like in your prayer life in a realistic way. So, submitting yourselves to God means submitting yourself to a loving, giving, knowing Father. Then James says this next, uh, second part of verse 7 resist the devil and he will flee from you. The nouns in that sentence are crazy. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You. That's crazy. Because you and I are the little, like, runts in the rain. And James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James doesn't say, blame the devil. The devil made me do all this stuff. The inner demons within me. No, James says, the inner desires in you. What you want is the problem. Not what the devil made you do. So he doesn't say, blame the devil. He says, flee or resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what does it mean to resist the devil? To recognize what his nearness looks like. To recognize what, his, what, it, what it looks like, what it feels like for him to be near you. Breathing down your neck with that awful breath, that accusing breath. When you're in a mindset, when I'm in a mindset where we're willing to use other people and use God himself to get to some other end, he's near. He's fanning into flame that ember in your heart. He's bending you away from the God who made you for himself and towards stuff God made. He's near. When we use God to rubber stamp our selfish agenda, when we beg Him to make our idolatry more successful, when we take others or take from others to satisfy our own desires, His influence is near. When your back is breaking and you're anxious and you're tired and you're scared and you're feeling insecure because you can't build the cistern fast enough, and the water level keeps going down, and you've got to go get more water to fill it back up, more life, go gather more security, more comfort, more respect, more approval, more acceptance to fill it back up, and your back is breaking because you're living an orphan life. He's near. That's what his presence feels like, and you're in the danger zone. This is a weird example, but parks and rec. I should have more parks and rec illustrations. There's, a, um, there's a, a little interaction between uh, Ron and Leslie one day, and Ron just like looks up. They're in the middle of a conversation, he just looks up, and kind of off into the distance, and he says, she's here. And Leslie says, who's here? And he says, my ex-wife, Tammy, too. I can smell the sulfur coming off her cloven hooves. Everything I just told you, that's the sulfur coming off the devil's cloven hooves. Perpetual conflict between you and other people. Drama that keeps coming up. Walking over other people's backs, walking over God himself's back to get after these things, this anxious toil. I can smell the sulfur coming off his cloven hooves. Once you know he's near and that his influence is influencing you um, and that that his lies and his heresy is infiltrating you, you can be on guard and begin to resist. So at a minimum, resisting the devil means not ignoring him. He's a thing. He's real. And it also means not downplaying him and just flippantly dismissing him. But it also means not fearing him in terror. Because if you are in Jesus, you have been liberated out of his grip. Jesus has bound him up and stolen you, redeemed you, set you free, delivered you from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You are free. You will judge the devil one day. You will stand in authority over him with Jesus, cursing him. Uh, would it make a difference to you if you were a, a little kid and you're on the you know, elementary or middle school, I guess they didn't have playgrounds in middle school, but you're out there and you were bullied, would it have made a difference to you If you had a big brother at the school who was like this just hulking offensive lineman, and he loved the heck out of you, you bet it would make a difference. Would your spine be a little stiffer? You'd stand up a little taller? You'd throw a few more punches? That's what James is saying. You are united to Jesus Christ, who has defeated and conquered the devil, and will vanquish him once for all soon. Stand up tall. Resist him. Little you can be the victor over him. He will flee from you. That's a promise. Resist him. He will flee from you. He will be the run backing away. The weakness of every bully is it just takes one person to call his bluff and his power is gone. It takes one person to say the emperor has no clothes and the emperor loses their power. James is inviting you to resist even the devil himself, to fight the devil and to fight your inner desires instead of fighting your neighbor. This is where it gets beautiful. This is my favorite part of this passage, so this is where we kind of begin to end. James goes on to another command. He says, or God says to you, verse 8, come near to me and I will come near to you. Come near to me and I will come near to you. Or return to me and I will return to you, your version of the Bible might say. What does he mean here? I realized this story might be unique to the 1980s. I grew up, I was born in 81, and I was coming of age in the 1980s. Do people still run away from home? Is that a thing? It was a big thing in the 80s. Like, everybody was like, mom and dad make you mad? You pack up that bag and you're off to the woods. You're going it alone. Well, I remember one day, my oldest brother, of course, my oldest brother, Matt, did this. I think mid-teen years. He just didn't want to take it anymore from mom and dad. They must have pushed him over the limit. And so I remember one afternoon we'd gotten home from school and Matt's got this backpack with all this stuff that a 13-year-old boy thinks he needs to survive on his own in the woods in the back of the neighborhood. And he just huffs and puffs and storms out of the house. And uh, it was just me and my other brother and my sister uh, who were who were home that day. Um, my dad was out of town. as my mom there. And so my mom just kind of lets him do do his thing for about 30 minutes and then we load up in the minivan and we start driving through the neighborhood. Every street we drive slowly with my mom's window rolled down as she periodically says, Matt, Matt, come home, come home. Here's why I tell you that story and how it helps us understand what it means when God tells you, God tells you, return to me and I will return to you. For God to even say those words to you, return to me and I'll return to you, means he's already in the car looking for you. For my mom to even be saying the words, Matt, come home, means she's already on the hunt. She's already looking for him. She's already driving the streets out pursuing him for god to say repent and come back to me means he's already coming towards you he's already drawn near to you he's not sitting around swiping away on his phone indifferent to whether you ever come back or not he's in the car looking for you but this story also illustrates another point that we need to see my brother matt had a decision to make i i don't even this is terrible i don't remember the outcome of that story I can't remember if, like, we found him right then or we did and he came back on his own. But Matt had a decision to make when he heard my mom saying, Matt, come home, Matt, come home. Keep hiding, keep running and just kind of that arrogant spirit or humble himself and bend the knee and come home and get in the car and allow himself to be pursued. Would he reciprocate my mom coming near to him? Would he come near to her? Here's some things God says to you, friends. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 3, return to me and I will return to you, he says. James chapter 4 verse 8, we just read it, come near to me and I will come near to you. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13, you will find me, you will find your God when you seek him with all of your heart. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter's preaching, he says, repent and return to the Lord so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing might come to you. So what's going on with all this? If you do this, God will do this. Is God saying, if you do A, I'll do B. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. No, because God's not formulaic and he's not transactional. So what's happening here? God is saying, I want you to want me. I want you to want me, I want you to fight for nearness to me, I want you to do something about the distance that's grown between you and me. He's provoking you to action. Over the years there's been a couple of locker room speeches that Kirby's given that have been leaked and they're amazing. And I'm not going to quote this directly. I have some bloopers when I try to do this stuff. But there is one, and it's his best. And Kirby is just going around. The guys are about to run back out on the field. I don't know what game it was. They're probably getting whooped. But he's, he's in their face, with a finger in their face. And he's looking at each of them individually, saying, I want you to eat. I want you to eat. I want you to eat. And then some other stuff. And the guys are getting, they're getting hyped. They're getting ready. And there's just kind of like primitive roar From the team after a cup a minute or two of this where they're now saying we want to eat we want to eat and then they run back on the field why do coaches do that why does Kirby Smart give those speeches it's to stir up a hunger in the hearts of his players that they lacked you can't win a game if you don't want to win a game You have to want it. Could we say that the Lord himself here in this passage, in the aftermath of your adultery, spiritually, in the context of your distancing and drifting, and asking him to make you more successful in getting away from him, in that context, could we say here that God is shouting to you, I'll take you back. I still love you as much as I ever did but you have to want me. I want you to want me. I'm here for the taking. Come and get me. What if he is provoking you out of the lethargy, out of the numbness, out of the apathy, out of the lackluster, could care less whether we're close or not. What if he is pushing you and saying, want me again? And what if in him provoking you and pushing you and getting his finger in your chest out of love, you see his love for you, his his pursuit of you, his care for you, his jealousy for you? And what if that begins to warm your heart towards him? He says, you return to me, you're going to find me running to you. You come near to me, I'll beat you to it you'll find me near to you. You repent days days of refreshing for your soul. Streams of living water are coming your way. Are you going to repent? Will you say, man, these cisterns suck. All I ever do is live in anxiety, filling them back up, watching the water level go back down. I was not made to live like this. I wasn't made for this. I've left my house right by the river to go wander in the desert, looking for water. And the one who owns the house by the river keeps sending me letters saying, hey, the house is still here. Come home. Come home. I got to say this before we end because some of you have been at a place for a while where you feel like I've wanted to go home. I've been thirsty for so long, hungry for so long. I just feel numb. I don't feel anything. I want to repent. I want to leave this desert wandering lifestyle. I want to come back to the river. I want to soak him up. And I don't know what to do. I think what James is doing here in verse 9 is giving you a template. He is giving you training wheels for your emotions. He's saying you feel nothing? Here's a template. Even if you're having to pull your emotions like puppet strings. By the way, your emotions did not get out of Eden unbroken. They're fallen. They're like a broken clock. Sometimes right, often wrong. And he says if you have to pick up your emotions and tell them what to do, here's what you do. Grieve. Mourn over the propensity of your heart, how it likes to forsake living waters and go out into the desert looking for bare drops. Mourn and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's saying, take this stuff seriously. Listen to me, deal with me. There's a prayer that we're going to put up here, and if if you want to take a picture of this so that you can pray it, you should do that. I'm going to read it, and we're going to close. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, brings what I just said down to earth in a a real man's prayer. He says, O God, I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Give me grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen your hope is that there is a God who wants you, a God who has gotten in the car and pursued you, a God who has already come near, already drawn near, a God who has purified you. Given that, will you turn? Will you repent? Or if you can't feel that, will you pray that he would help you want him? Let's pray. Jesus, do that, I pray, for my friends who do feel their hearts warm to you. They hear this and they feel those prodigal feet wanting to go back to the Father, wanting to walk that dusty road back home, wanting to see the Father run to them. Some of my friends have been in that place too long. Their hearts are seared. Their consciences are numb. Their emotions are not registering anything. They don't feel. And Jesus, we will need you to be a resurrected Redeemer for them, for me, for us, to breathe life in those places and to help us want you and to long for you. But even in the meantime, help us move towards you as you move towards us. Even in the absence of emotion or felt desire, we pray that you would give that to us. It's in your name and power we pray. Amen.